podcast is brought to you by CEW Plus at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor as we work to serve our community during this unprecedented time of change. Resiliency is best demonstrated in times of challenges. Join CEW Plus Director Tiffany Mara as she talks to students, staff, faculty, and community members connected to the University of Michigan's Center for the Education of Women Plus in our podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. Today's podcast features Alyssa Welly, who completed her PhD in biomedical engineering at U of M in 2021. Alyssa is a reporter at the Detroit Free Press covering a wide range of breaking news stories. Alyssa, welcome to the Strength in the Midst of Change podcast. Can you please tell us a bit about yourself and your journey and what led you in particular after your PhD in biomedical engineering to journalism? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me on. I'm honored to be here to get to talk to you and share a little bit about my experience. Yeah, so as you mentioned, I got my PhD last year in 2021, and since January for the last few months, I've been working for Detroit Free Press. And looking back, when you end up as a reporter, having gotten a PhD, then it gets easy to think, what? How in the world did that happen? But looking back, I think with a broad view of my whole life, I think that it makes sense where I ended up. I was really inspired by my older sister. So my sister is 12 years older than me. And being someone kind of a stage and a half ahead of me like that, it's easy to really look up to someone that you love and admire who also is kind of paving the way. She is currently still in STEM. So after her first three years of college as a pottery student majoring in pottery and fine art, she decided to switch into neuroscience. And so I was a young one then. I was like in elementary school watching my sister be this total rock star of switching fields in her later college years and then getting into a PhD program, which no one in my family has ever done anything in STEM, let alone an advanced degree. And so watching her do that was super inspiring. And I truly think I've spent a lot of my life really just inspired by her and I still am inspired by her. And so I think when I was going through high school then and she was going through grad school and later starting a job in STEM, I think that I really picked up on the fact that, oh, I also like physics, or I also like math. I like science. And and it was easy for me to bounce those ideas off of her because that's what she was studying. She was studying neuroscience. And so I think that led me to kind of be naturally attracted to a field of engineering. So I went through undergrad with a focus in biomedical engineering and then my PhD in biomedical engineering. And things I like about it were always, I like math. I find solving problems very satisfying. Lucky for me, a lot of engineering classes is problem solving. And so I did a lot of things that I really enjoyed. But I also, you know, maybe didn't pause and kind of reflect on my broader goals in life. And so during the pandemic, actually, I had the time, this was in my fourth year of my PhD. I was unsure if I liked research in general. I was unsure if I liked engineering, even though I had pursued this for so long. And because of the lockdowns and being shut out from lab for a couple of months, I had and was forced to take a break and like think about what I liked and kind of revisit my broader goals or access them for the first time I hadn't really thought about them. And I think through that that process, I started to realize that there were cracks in my plan that I hadn't realized. I wanted to be a professor just like my sister. I wanted to study cutting edge technology. And I was realizing that like, I actually don't like research. I actually don't like what I do every day. I'm happy that I'm not in the lab. All of those types of thoughts started to come to the surface, which was alarming at first, very alarming, but also a little bit 
refreshing to be able to think maybe some of the things I've been feeling, I just haven't really been paying attention to. So that led me through a long path of like discovering what other options there are for me, not wanting to quote unquote, like throw away a degree while also considering, do I even want to finish my PhD? All of those things happened at the same time as one big kind of messy cycle of like, I hate this. I love this. I want to do something else. No, I never want to leave all those types of thoughts and, and feelings. And I did a lot of informational interviews, actually counted. I did 63 informational interviews across wow. a spectrum of seven or eight different fields. And yeah, I talked to other researchers similar to what I had been considering that I was pursuing. I talked to people who were studying how to teach engineering in a four-year college context. I talked to people who were studying how to research engineering education. Like I was just, I don't know, spitballing in the academic world. And then I was like, wait, what if I want to do consulting, maybe policy. What if I want to teach high school? What if I want, you know, I mean, I just went through anything and everything that could be remotely related. Somehow I found myself gravitating more closely towards people who are doing policy, people who are kind of out, I guess, quote unquote, in the real world, although that's not always accurate, but people who are out of the ivory tower, but we're still tapping into science. And I was talking to science policy experts, people who worked for Congress, worked for a specific senator as a science policy person. And I was realizing that the things I liked about worlds like that were more of the social, more of the communication aspects of it, which I felt like, and kind of brought part of the broader purpose. Oh, we have this bigger vision. We want to enact the Affordable Care Act, right? For, I mean, this mm-hmm. is from a long time ago, right? But like, what if you're like, I want to really work on health care initiatives. And I'm going to work towards that goal. I really like that mindset. And in science and in research, it's a little bit more individual. It's not quite as group oriented. So I started talking to people, gravitate towards science policy, um, took a class in science policy the last semester of my PhD. Don't always recommend that. Pretty stressful, but <laughs> learned a lot. And I realized, in fact, the things that I liked about policy was more of the day-to-day aspects of it. I don't think I really enjoyed the idea and like thoughts behind crafting policy. It's pretty theoretical. And the things that I liked about were more of like the practical aspects of talking and negotiating with people. And that led me down through this. I mean, there's not really a natural conclusion to this besides the fact that I ended up thinking maybe journalism, but I hadn't really talked to anyone yet at that point in time. I found myself in September, 2021, I just finished, officially finished my PhD. I went to the Michigan Daily Student Newspaper orientation. I showed up. I was 27. Everyone else was 18. I showed up and I was like, I am a graduate alumni. I'm not even an undergrad. I don't fit in here. Will you take me? And they were like, I guess technically we're allowed to take you. In our bylaws, any alumni can work for us for one semester after they graduate. I was like, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> and so that got me down through that long winding process that is explained, got me all the way down to my first experience in journalism. And once I kind of branched into that world, I realized I really loved it. I also realized tons of people, not the overwhelming majority by any means, but there are tons of people who have gotten their PhD or master's or undergrad in STEM and have gone into journalism. I just hadn't tapped into that world yet. And it wasn't until I was at the Michigan Daily where I really started to realize this is a whole world that exists and I love it. Uh It's so great. You were at a major decision point. So you kind of had this 
pause because of COVID, which is a positive from COVID, which is great to identify. Mm -hmm. And in that pause, Mm -hmm. you realized, oh, maybe I've been feeling things that I haven't just acknowledged and that it's time to think about how I'm pivoting. And so I find it interesting, your strategy in that decision point where you were basically at a blank slate moment. Um, Have you had other Mm -hmm. times in your life when you've had kind of that turning point moment in making a decision? And did you use the same strategy that you employed in this case? Yeah, I have had other moments where it's a blank slate. Nothing as drastic as this. It was a big moment because I'm very goal-oriented as a person. And I have always had the same goal, which is essentially to become a research professor. And so all of my decision path had been really geared towards. So I don't think I've ever had such a strong goal for that long period of time. So I can't say that there's anything that extreme, but I do recognize looking back on other periods of time where I have to make decisions, whether it's in my personal life regarding a relationship or whether it's figuring out where I'm going to go to college or whether it's determining, I don't know, should I adopt a dog? It's like uh-huh. any sort of decision-making process, I find myself very much turning towards other people and trying to interview them. I mean, I look back on it now, I think of it as an interview, but mm-hmm. then I just thought I was chatting with people. But I was interviewing them in a way to gauge what they would do and kind of crowdsourcing opinions, which is pretty similar to what journalists do for stories. They interview people, see what they think, and then they write it down, they report it. So I think I've had that tendency in my decisions in the past, and I just had a more extreme version of that when I was literally locked out of the lab doing something I'd never done before, which is working from home, also in isolation at that time. And I reached out to people to talk to them, being like, I think the feelings I'm having now in this crazy moment during the pandemic I think these feelings have been there this whole time and I'm trying to figure out what to do with them like do I change my whole career path and I naturally reached out to people and talked to them so I think I've done that in the past and I think that it was just more apparent in that concentrated period of time I'm sure from your 63 interviews you could probably write a whole article about that and the experience of it and what you took away (laughs) from it and what others could gain from all of that work that you did across seven or eight fields, you said. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. a remarkable database of information you collected there through that period. Yeah, it's true. Maybe I should do something with it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you did. You made a decision, but... (laughs) That's true. I'm curious, how does your background in the sciences inform your reporting? Yeah, I think there's a lot of ways to look at it. I think I'm very confident when it comes to researching something that I don't know anything about because I know the skills of how to research things that are complex and that are maybe convoluted. I feel very calm in the face of being faced with a daunting topic to research. So I think that's a practical aspect of having spent years researching things that are hard, but also things that people just don't know much about and you just have to kind of dig to find out answers. With that, I think tangibly, I rely a lot on the primary literature, the primary research. When I read an article about something and there's a link that says like, you know, as reported originally from Michigan radio, I'll click on that link. And then I read the Michigan radio article. Okay, that's the original article. Oh, actually they cite this study. Okay, let me click on the study. And then I get to another article that talks about the study. And then I click on the link to get to the actual study. And then I read the actual study, right? That's the type of thing that is, I mean, I'm not the only one who does this. Lots of people do this, but. I do think that I tend to really dig to get to the basic level of information and read the true raw detail and then build myself back up through the other reporting. Uh-huh. I think that that's just a trait that I've learned from 
having to do that in my work. You have to read the abstracts, you have to read the primary literature, you have to read what the things other people cite in the introductions and then the discussions. So that I think helps me. I think I come to my stories when I sit down to write them, I'm very thorough and I have a lot of background information. I probably write down 10% of what I've learned because you have to gather all that information and then you can put it together to make a complete story. Yeah, it sounds like though the scope of research that you want to do, oftentimes you have to put boundaries around it. What are some of the ways that you kind of set boundaries in, in the writing and what you decide to put forward in the articles that you write within the scope of your research to kind of help keep it within scope and within time frame? As you mentioned, the time frame is a very helpful boundary. Um, right now I'm on the breaking news team for Detroit Free Press. So our time frames are strict and they are quick. So that is helpful. I only have five hours to write this story after oh, wow. an event. You just got to write it. You just got to sit down, you got to write it. And it is not the most in-depth story ever, but you also write whatever is truthful. You don't make things up. Obviously, you write whatever you experienced, write whatever you heard. And if it only is 500 words because you just don't have other information to include, that's okay. So yeah, I think that for shorter stories, boundaries are great. I have to learn how to write faster. That's what I'm working on right now. And then in terms of depth of research, I wouldn't say that it's intuitive, but there does get a point in time where it's almost like you're doing research and you're digging and you kind of get bored or you just get tired of it. You're like, okay, I think I've just got enough. And I'm not really sure if that's just a gut instinct or if it's just a matter of you could only read about one topic for so many hours and then you're like, okay, I'm done. But yeah, there definitely are some helpful boundaries with the time constraints. And then in terms of the depth, I think it's just a matter of kind of reaching the extent of how much emotional and mental investment you want to put into it. And it helps right now because we're writing things that are fast turnaround. Any extra bit of research that I gather and can put into the story adds to it. But not including all of the pieces of research, like I could include every aspect about a certain vineyard that I'm writing a story about. Okay, I could include everything about this vineyard, the entire timeline. But do the readers really need to know everything about it? No, not really. It's almost like every bit of information and depth that you can add to it is, is good. It doesn't have to be everything. That will change in the future when I write other stories that are more science-based and it's harder to encapsulate all of the nuanced aspects of research. I'll have to learn those skills in the future about when do I stop doing the research, the background. Yeah, no, in changing into a, a new field, a new career, has anything surprised you about the work or about yourself? You know, one of the things that I was fascinated to find was just the reporters get a lot of flack. I did not realize that the world of journalism came with so many pretty negative emotional side effects. I have, in the few months that I've worked, I guess a professional capacity as a reporter, I've gotten yelled at on the phone, I've gotten nasty emails, I got all these weird messages on Twitter. And it's kind of just like being a public face and reporting on news. And if people don't want to hear it, or if someone is not necessarily seeing the world the same way that you are, it's really easy to be the the brunt of people's anger. So that's been really fascinating to me. I mean, you as a researcher are quite shielded from the world in both good and bad ways. 
the good way is you probably don't get many interactions that are negative with you know people from outside of your tiny little microcosm. Obviously, the bad side is that there's tons of things that happen in research that are unnecessary or wasted taxpayer dollars or things like that where you just don't get input from the public. And so you don't find it to be bad because you're not getting any input. So there's good and bad to that. In the outside, being in a reporting which is quite public, you get a lot of public input. <laughs> so that was a bit of a shock to me. I think I just was surprised by that. I guess you'd always hear about people being upset with various media companies or various slants that media companies might present news. You hear that, but then to be actually in the midst of it and experiencing it is kind of jarring. So how have you managed that? How have you managed your own self-care and anxiety in receiving these types of responses from your work? It has definitely been anxiety producing, but it's rare enough that it's not maybe every day. And I've relied a lot on the experienced journalists who normalize it. You're just like, hey, this is normal. Like, you're going to get these emails. Don't even open them. Just delete them. If someone replies to you with a nasty tone but isn't swearing at you, it's probably best to just write a quick reply. Thank them for their readership. They've just given me some coaching tips, which has been helpful. So it's nice to know it's not just me. That's always helpful. But in terms of other forms of self-care, I really, I rely a lot on exercise and being with my dog and finding creative ways to express myself. I've taken up watercolor painting in the last few months. Instagram got me with a with an ad for a watercolor class. <laughs> and it turns out I actually love it. And I'm so glad I got that ad. <laughs> and so I took this watercolor class and I've been really enjoying watercolor painting. And then I have a dog who's a little over a year. And so that takes up a lot of a lot of time and brings me a lot of joy and gets me out exercising because I have to walk and run my dogs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Pets are so good at being support creatures to us. We think we're taking care so of them, good. but really they're taking care of us. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, yeah. there's a final question here. What advice yeah. would you give to U of M community members who have a deep investment in more than one field of interest like you did? People who have deep investment in multiple interests, multiple fields, can, sometimes it can feel isolating. And instead, or acknowledging that it, it might feel isolating, but looking at it as a unique, fun trait. It can sometimes just feel a little bit lonely to be like, oh, you know, I have one foot in this store and one foot out. And that's okay. People who are fully invested in the field that they're in, that's okay too. But it's, it's helpful to remember it's totally okay to have multiple interests. One of the nice things about social media and LinkedIn and Twitter is that it is easier to connect to people that are entirely outside your immediate group of people. So a lot of things that I did when I met people, I would just find them on Twitter and send them a DM or I'd even message or reply to a comment on their Twitter page and be like, hey, can I DM you? Find them on LinkedIn or email them. And a lot of times people want to explain their story. So if you reach out and you ask, hey, I'm in this field I noticed that you were in that field and now you're in somewhere else. Or I noticed that you were in that field and you have this hobby that I also have. Can we just talk? Can we just connect? People are so eager to do that. Very, very rarely have I reached out and not gotten a reply. I mean, I honestly, I cannot think of any right now. Almost always when you reach out to people and you explain to them that you have some commonality and you want to learn something from them, they're going to want to talk to you. And I think that that's really helpful for when you're in a field where you have these multiple investments and maybe you are feeling isolated. 
to find people who are outside your small area of U of M or whatever school, but specifically at U of M, and find someone else that's online and connect to them and maybe you can learn something from them. So that's my advice. I mean, that's obviously the path that I chose. I did a lot of interviews. How I found most of those people was just online. I wasn't connected with them. They're not through U of M. Most of the people I found on Twitter and LinkedIn. And it was really helpful for me because then they could connect me to someone else. Oh, you should talk to my friend who used to work, whatever. And finding that network through social media, through online websites, it's just a gift that we have in our generation. And it's something that I encourage people to take advantage of. Were there any surprise yeses that you got that you were like, there's no way this person will talk to me? So I was listening to NPR and they were interviewing a stat news reporter about a story to do with HIV. And I had read the story and I heard her on NPR um, being interviewed, this reporter. And I was just like, she is the coolest person ever. I want to be her. I think she's got this great story. I loved how she wrote her story. And she was doing this interview. And I found her on Twitter and I had just entirely pulled DMs. I was like, hey. I listened to your story. I listened to your interview. I read your story. Can we chat? And I just think of her as this really awesome, very cool, and very established reporter. And she was entirely so sweet. And was like, yeah, absolutely. Let's chat tomorrow. Do you have like 15 minutes? I was like, oh my gosh. So there's been a couple people like that where I just must say, girl, oh, all their cool work. And then I reach out and then they reply. So Megan Multaney at Stat News. Thank you, if you ever listen to this. <laughs> She's an excellent reporter, and I was just amazed that she actually replied to me. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. I love yeah. it when those surprises come through, because I'll often do the same thing and try and connect with people. I'm like, ah, there's no way. And then they're like, we connected on LinkedIn. And it's such a great feeling. It's like the world gets a little bit happier. Yeah, you know? yep, exactly. It's nice. Well, yeah. Lisa, it has been wonderful talking to you. Thank you for sharing your story with me and saying yes to this interview. It's been uh, very motivating and inspiring to hear how you transitioned after committing to a PhD and have now found a field you're really interested in. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm honored to be able to talk to you and share my story, but also just excited to be able to connect with you and to hopefully inspire other people to feel confident to make changes in their career, too. Thank you for listening to CEW's podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. To learn more about this episode or the services and virtual programming offered by CEW+, please visit cew.umich.edu. Here at CEW+, we navigate circumstantial barriers by providing academic, financial, and professional support to help you reach your personal potential. Established to support women through higher education, we lift up women and all underserved communities at the University of Michigan and beyond. Through career and education counseling, funding, workshops, events, and a diverse, welcoming community, we exist to empower. We are CEW+, and we are here to help you reach your potential. The University of Michigan resides on the traditional territories of the three fires peoples, the Ojibwa, Odawa, and Potawatomi. 